1: Imagine being so gripped with fear, you don't feel safe to walk past your front gate. You're suspicious of every stranger that passes you on a street you've been down a thousand times before. Feeling on edge, you constantly look over your shoulder at unfamiliar cars driving slowly down your street. You no longer feel safe, catching the train. You shelter in your house. These were the words published 29 years ago by a Melbourne, Australian newspaper, The Herald Sun. Because the residents of the suburb of Frankston weren't just imagining it, they were living it, during the dark, drizzly, and terrifying winter of 1993. Join me now as we take a look at the case of the Frankston serial killer. You'll hear how three young women became victims of a remorseless murderer who chose his victims at random, striking whenever he felt the urge to kill again. It was all smiles for Debbie Freem inside the maternity ward of a Frankston hospital on June 26, 1993. The 22-year-old had just given birth to a beautiful baby boy after a relatively short labor. She named the 7-pound, 4-ounce, healthy baby, Jake Daniel Blair, taking his father's last name. Baby Jake's father was Gary Blair, Debbie's fiancé. And although Debbie's pregnancy had initially been a surprise for the couple, both parents were overjoyed with the news and began excitedly planning for their little family's future together. In fact, they'd been so delighted by the news of Baby Jake, they even started discussing the idea of having another one. But first they had a wedding to plan. Before her pregnancy, Debbie had spent her late teens and early twenties as somewhat of a free-wandering spirit, happy-go-lucky, and always on the move. But now more than ever, she welcomed the idea of stability and settling down in Melbourne with a family of her own, and she took to motherhood like a fish to water, with Gary diving into fatherhood headfirst as well even taking over midnight bottle-feeding duties so Debbie could get some rest. And to support their growing family, Gary returned to shifts at work with a company called k and Freighters, the same company Debbie worked at before taking maternity leave. By July 8th, Debbie had been a mother for exactly 12 days and was positively glowing about it, proudly showing off baby Jake to friends and family. That evening, Gary was working the late shift so Debbie decided to catch up with one of her best friends, a former co-worker named Russell Hayes. Russell hadn't seen Debbie since she left work on maternity leave, so he was thrilled to accept the invitation for a visit that night to meet the new baby. When Russell arrived at 5.45 p.m., Debbie offered him a cup of black coffee because she'd completely run out of milk. One of those small frustrations that can occur amidst the chaos of caring for a newborn For dinner, Debbie planned on making omelettes, something she absolutely needed milk for. With Russell now there, she decided to pop out and buy a jug while he watched the baby. It would only take a few minutes, since there was a store just down the street. For Debbie, it was also a welcome chance to enjoy just having even five minutes to herself, even if it was to do just a quick errand. After driving about a mile to the store, Debbie pulled into a parking lot and walked inside. At the same time, Debbie was reaching into a cooler to grab a jug of milk. A man outside the store was reaching through the unlocked driver's side door of her car and opening up the rear one. After crawling inside Debbie's car, the man wedged himself behind the driver's seat next to the baby seat, keeping his eyes fixed on Debbie as she made her way through the store. When Debbie got back inside the car and pulled out of the parking lot. She had no idea there was a man hidden in the back seat. Once out of the store parking lot, Debbie began making a U-turn to head back to her house. But before she could realize what was happening, the barrel of a gun was being pushed into her side as a man told her to shut up and keep driving. What Debbie didn't realize at the time was that the gun was fake, regardless it probably wouldn't have mattered if she had. It was still a terrifying situation, gun or no gun. The man told Debbie if she tried signaling for help, he'd decorate the car with her brains. Even so, Debbie courageously flicked her headlights, attempting to alert oncoming traffic. Although a few people did take notice, ultimately no one understood the message she was desperately trying to convey. After passing her house, where Russell was still watching the baby. The man forced Debbie to drive about 10 miles outside of town to a remote location near a farm on Taylor's Road. During the drive, Debbie tried offering the man money, told him to take the car, but the man wanted neither. After being forced out of the car, Debbie suddenly felt something being wrapped around her neck and tightening. For five very long, terrifying, and agonizing minutes, Debbie fought back against her much larger attacker, but eventually grew faint and collapsed. As she fell to her knees, Debbie began to feel a new pain, a large knife being repeatedly thrust into her body. Until her last breath, Debbie never stopped fighting, fighting for her life, fighting for the baby she desperately wanted to get back home to. Tragically, she never would. The killer left Debbie's body next to a farmer's field, breaking off a branch from a tree to cover her with. After driving away in Debbie's car, he parked along a street in front of a church, and then simply walked away. Back at Debbie's home, Russell was watching TV as baby Jake slept peacefully in his bassinet. But 30 minutes later, when Debbie still hadn't returned home... Russell became concerned and began calling around to police departments and hospitals, thinking she'd possibly been in an accident, but there was no sign of Debbie. Russell then called Gary, who immediately rushed home from work to help look for Debbie, but she was nowhere to be found. By midnight, Gary filed the missing persons report. For an agonizing four days, the search for Debbie continued with police considering every possibility including that perhaps she'd skipped town. Maybe she'd been experiencing severe postpartum depression. Anything was possible. In the meantime, detectives had discovered Debbie's car parked right where the killer had left it, and inside they found traces of blood on the front seat. They'd also noticed the driver's seat had been pushed all the way back, leading them to believe the last person driving the car must have been much larger than Debbie clues all pointing to foul play heartbreakingly on july 12th a farmer discovered what everyone had dreaded debbie deceased in one of his fields along taylor's road gary blair's worst fears had come true his fiance and mother of his child would never be coming home and baby jake would never get to know the mother who'd brought him into the world As detectives began working the crime scene, they came to another horrifying realization. Debbie had been savagely murdered, strangled with a cord, and then stabbed 14 times in her neck and chest, but no sign of sexual assault. These details were particularly horrifying, not only because of the barbaric nature of the attack, but also because the detectives had seen it before, only a month earlier. 18-year-old Elizabeth Stevens had recently moved to Melbourne to live with her aunt and uncle after finishing her final year of school. Originally from Hobart, Tasmania, Elizabeth's teen years had been chaotic. After her parents split when she was 14, she found herself forced to live in a children's group home until her 18th birthday. On the day she turned 18, Elizabeth booked a ticket for Adelaide, hoping to reconcile with her mother. However, for various reasons… Things didn't work out, and Elizabeth was once again in search for a home she could call her own. Fortunately, she found that home with her aunt and uncle Rita and Paul Webster living in Melbourne. Elizabeth had every right to be angry with the cards she'd been dealt in life. Instead, she never displayed anything but the utmost gratitude towards her relatives for taking her in. She was appreciative, respectful, and always reliable. Whenever she left the house… Elizabeth always left a note for Paul and Rita, letting them know where they could find her and when to expect her home. She loved living with the couple so much, she told her friends at school she might just live with Paul and Rita forever. On June 11, 1993, Elizabeth went to the library to work on a research paper after school. And like always, she left a note saying where'd she be and what time she'd be home, around 8 p.m., She even left the library's phone number just in case. When Elizabeth left the library to catch her bus ride home, a torrential rainstorm began passing through the area and was still pouring as she got off at her stop just a few minutes' walk from her aunt and uncle's home. As Elizabeth made her way, drenched and cold in the dark, she was suddenly attacked from behind. A large man clasped her mouth shut with one hand, while pressing the barrel of a gun into her temple. Again, the gun was fake, but there was no way Elizabeth would have known. After forcing her into some trees surrounding Lloyd Park, the man began choking her until she passed out. Once on the ground, the killer pulled out a knife and slashed Elizabeth's throat. For the next five minutes, he stood in the pouring rain, Watching as the life bled completely out of Elizabeth's body, he then stabbed her six more times in the chest before slowly carving a series of lines into her abdomen that looked like a tic-tac-toe board. Next, he dragged and tossed her body into a ditch, covering her with a branch. As the rain continued to pour down, Elizabeth's blood was washed away from the killer's hands, face and clothes. He then simply turned and walked away. The following day, Elizabeth's body was discovered. The search for a killer would take much longer. Exactly one month had passed since Elizabeth Stevens' and Debbie Frame's bodies were discovered, and detectives couldn't ignore the similarities between the cases. Both attacks had occurred in Frankston, five miles apart from each other. Neither victim appeared to have been sexually assaulted. Both had been strangled and stabbed multiple times. Detectives realized almost immediately that an active serial killer was possibly now operating in the quiet Melbourne suburb. And if that was true, that meant he was still out there somewhere, hunting for his next victim it was an entire community's worst fears come true. And now, it was a race against the clock to catch the killer before they could strike again. By the time newspapers hit the stands on July 13th, the media had already begun to speculate that the two murders were related. Murders that might also be connected with several other unsolved murders of young women in the area over the past couple years. The following day, The Melbourne paper ran a shocking headline in bold type on its front page, Serial Killer on the Loose. What could be more terrifying for a community than to read words like that on the front page of their local newspaper? The entire suburb of Frankston was shaken to its core, with no one knowing who to trust. A serial killer was hiding in plain sight, and police were publicly warning women not to walk anywhere alone at night. Enrollment in self-defense classes skyrocketed, and the area was beginning to resemble a ghost town after sunset. The police force responded by putting an army of extra officers out into the community in an attempt to make the public feel a little more safe. The vast majority of women who did need to be out after dark were accompanied by fathers, husbands, boyfriends, or walked together in groups. One of those women who needed to be out after dark was Sharon Johnson, a young woman who worked two jobs and didn't get home until well after dark each night. After Debbie Freem's murder, Sharon's boyfriend, 21-year-old Paul Denyer, waited to pick her up from the train platform after work in his beat-up yellow Toyota. A few police officers milling about had double-checked to make sure the man who'd been waiting for her was indeed her boyfriend. One officer commented to her she was lucky to have someone willing to meet her at the station and get her home safely because one could never be too careful during times like these. At the time, Sharon's boyfriend Paul was unemployed and escorting Sharon home was really the least he could do to help out. Frankston police had been poring over every available resource in their hunt for a serial killer. There were extra officers on the street, public meetings, and extensive public appeals for any leads or information. What followed was a flood of tips into the station, with every lead being pursued until a dead end was hit. It was a monumental undertaking with detectives and uniformed officers working tirelessly for weeks on end. But after three full weeks of investigating, police were no closer to solving the case they were basically still at square one. Without discovering any valuable evidence from either crime scene, all police really had to work with was a criminal profile, created by an officer who'd trained with the FBI's behavioral science unit in the United States. According to the profile, the killer was most likely a male between the ages of 18 and 24. The profile theorized that the killer was so wrapped up in his killing fantasies he'd have difficulty concentrating on anything else. This led them to the conclusion that the killer wouldn't be able to maintain a steady job, perhaps was unemployed altogether. Most disturbingly for Frankston residents, the killer seemed to travel on foot, which could only mean one thing. He lived close by, and finally, the killer would be someone who appeared normal, because he was able to walk around freely without raising suspicions. Police knew the serial killer could literally be right under their noses, possibly in the audience at one of the community meetings. Maybe he'd interacted with officers on the streets. Knowing that a serial killer was walking amongst them made it all the more terrifying. Three weeks had passed since Debbie Frame's murder, and with tensions throughout Frankston running high, Women were still mostly avoiding traveling alone after dark, but what good was taking precautions after dark if the serial killer was willing to strike in broad daylight? Almost exactly halfway between Lloyd Park, where Elizabeth had been murdered, and the convenience store where Debbie had been abducted, sits two golf courses right next to each other along Frankston Sky Road. The only thing separating the courses was a well-used bike track, running the entire length between them. The bike path itself is about a kilometer in length, flanked on both sides by high chain-link fences designed to keep people from sneaking onto the golf courses. Thick trees and bushes line the fences from either side. It also happened to be a popular trail used by students walking home from school. Around 2 p.m. on July 30th, Paul Denyer parked his beat-up yellow Toyota on the street next to the bike path entrance. With his girlfriend Sharon Johnson away every day at work, he had all the time in the world to fantasize about, plan and execute his next murder. Paul, the caring and concerned boyfriend who'd shown up at the train station to make sure his girlfriend got home safely. Earlier that day, Paul had taken a wire cutter with him as he scouted out the bike trail. At three different locations in the fence, Paul cut large holes through the chain links. He planned to hide in the bushes behind one of the holes, abduct his victim, and then carry her back through the fence and into the bush using one of the other holes. After preparing his trap, all he had left to do was wait. Paul patiently waited 30 minutes or so in his car until he spotted a girl walking home alone, wearing a school uniform. It was only 2.30, the middle of the day. She was supposed to be safe until nightfall. 17-year-old Natalie Russell usually rode her bike to and from school, but that particular morning, she'd gotten a ride to school from her mother. Earlier that day, She'd mentioned to friends how unexcited she was to have to walk home because she didn't have her bike. Watching from his car, Paul saw Natalie cross the street and begin walking next to the golf course. He guessed correctly she'd soon be taking the bike path because there really wasn't any other reason for her to be walking on that side of the street if she wasn't. Seeing the beginning of his plan coming together... Paul got out of his car and raced down the track ahead of Natalie to the first hole he prepared in the fence. As she walked along the path, Natalie must have realized somebody was behind her because she turned her head around to see a man walking about 30 feet behind. The man was large, 6 feet tall, and pushing 230 pounds. Trying not to raise any alarms, Paul walked casually and it worked. As fast as she turned her head to look behind her, Natalie turned her head forward again and continued walking. She had no idea. She was walking closer and closer to the second hole Paul had cut through the chain fence. And he was only biding his time until she arrived at it. As Natalie continued walking towards Paul's trap, he picked up his pace and closed the gap between them walking on the grass to make as little noise as possible. Before Natalie knew it, Paul was grabbing her mouth violently from behind, tilting her head back while holding a knife up to her throat. At that moment, Natalie must have known exactly who he was and exactly what he intended on doing. With the knife against her neck, Paul forced Natalie through the hole in the fence, and into the bushes as she begged for her life, offering Paul anything she could think of. But he had only one thing on his mind. As he began strangling her with a leather strap he'd taken from a pair of binoculars, Natalie tried to fight back with everything she had, but Paul had the upper hand. After knocking Natalie to the ground, he slashed her throat with a knife. However, this time he'd made a crucial mistake. During the struggle, Paul accidentally sliced off an inch-long piece of skin from the inside of his middle finger on his left hand, the first piece of forensic evidence the Frankston serial killer left behind. Back on Sky Road, just moments before Paul had gotten out of his car and ran down the path, a postal worker had seen him sitting parked in his yellow Toyota. She noticed he was sitting low in his seat as if he didn't want to be seen, and when Natalie passed by, she watched as he slumped down even further. Normally, such an innocent innocuous occurrence might not have raised any eyebrows. However, these were anything but normal times. Immediately, the postal worker turned into the next driveway and asked the homeowner to use their phone so she could report the man to police. Around the same time, at 2.40 in the afternoon, Natalie's mother drove past her school on the way home, hoping she might spot Natalie and offer her a ride. But Natalie had already turned off and headed down the trail. Leaving Natalie's body in the thick bushes behind the fence, Paul Denyer, who was now a bona fide serial killer, crawled back through the hole and casually walked back toward his car. Except now, It was surrounded by uniformed police officers inspecting the vehicle from the outside. The officers had arrived about 15 minutes after the postal worker had made a call to police about a suspicious character on the bike path. But Paul kept his cool and head down and walked right past his car, passing the officers. Only a mile walk before reaching his front door. Natalie Russell was officially reported as a missing person by her parents around 7.30 that evening, and police responded in full force, immediately sending out helicopters, canine units, emergency volunteers, and mounted police looking everywhere for the missing teen. A group of volunteers carrying flashlights were sent out to search the bike path, and by 10.45pm, they'd found Natalie's body. When her identity was verified by a police officer, a call was put out on the radio to the rest of the search team. Our worst fears have been realized. Natalie's autopsy revealed just how hard she fought back with excessive defense wounds to her arms, each of her hands still clinging onto hairs pulled from her killer's head. The autopsy also revealed a surprising discovery. While examining the brutal cuts to her neck, they found a piece of skin inside of one of them. Judging from the ridges and texture present, they concluded it had most likely come from the killer's hand. While police were still processing the crime scene on July 31st, detectives were made aware of the fact that some officers had responded to a call the day before and had inspected a yellow Toyota near the scene. If it hadn't have been for the suspicious postal worker, it was a lead they may never have had. After running the Toyota's temporary registration number through their system, the owner's name came back as Paul Denier. His address was also on file. By late afternoon, they arrived at Sharon Johnson's and Paul Denier's home and were knocking on the door. When the door opened, Paul stood in the doorway and politely invited the detectives inside. The large 21-year-old had a boyish face and came across as unassuming. Once inside, detectives began asking Paul about his whereabouts on the night all three murders occurred, and Paul had an answer for all of them, almost as if he'd been preparing for that very moment. However, the thing that caught detectives' eyes the most was an inch-long cut on the middle of Paul's middle finger. It was fresh and exactly the same size of the piece of skin the pathologist had discovered during Natalie's autopsy. Paul was then brought down to the station for a formal interview, and even though he tried to deny any involvement for the better part of a day, he finally decided to confess. A confession that continues to haunt the detectives to this very day. You
0: uh, told Detective Overlockton that you were responsible for the murders of the three, the three women. Just tell us in your own words, Paul, what happened in relation to the death of Elizabeth Stevens at Langmuirn. I walked up behind her, stuck my left hand around her, around her mouth like this, held a gun to her head right here. I started choking her with my hands. Can you tell me why you attacked her on that
1: night? Just had, just had the feeling that's so... all.
0: What, what sort of feeling? Can you possibly describe it? Where, where you had this feeling?
1: Just wanted, just wanted to kill. As they listened to Paul describe in painstaking detail how he murdered Elizabeth, Debbie and Natalie, Paul confessed to everything. Without the slightest hint of remorse, his tone was no different than if he'd been recounting what he'd had for dinner that night. He wasn't gloating, angry, sorry, happy, or even scared, and the detectives had never seen or heard anything like it before in their lives. When he was asked why he'd done it, Paul responded simply, "Now I've
0: always wanted to kill. Since, man. Since I was about four
1: all three victims have been killed at random, simply and tragically, because they've been at the wrong place at the wrong time. And if it hadn't been them, it would have been someone else. It's difficult to overstate the amount of relief residents of Frankston experienced after news of Paul's arrest. Sadly, that relief was darkened by the news of Natalie's murder and the revelation that the serial killer had been able to strike one last time before his capture. The sheer terror Paul had caused the suburb can still be felt today, with one of Natalie's best friends commenting earlier this year that even today, there's not a woman in Frankston that doesn't check her back seat before getting in the car. In December of 1993, Paul Denyer pled guilty to all three counts of murder as well as the abduction of a woman named Rosa Toth. Only an hour before Paul had crawled into the backseat of Debbie Frame's car, he'd attempted to murder another woman outside of a train station. However, Rosa was somehow able to wrestle her way out of Paul's clutches, then ran out onto a nearby road where she was picked up by a passing motorist. But Paul was determined to finally turn his seven-year-long urge into reality and decided to search for another victim that very night, Debbie. When it came to Paul's sentencing, many were calling for the state of Victoria to reinstitute the death penalty. And although the judge may have agreed, he was only able to give Paul the harshest sentence available under their law, life imprisonment with no minimum non-parole period. The judge ended the sentencing by delivering some of the most chilling words we've ever heard from a judge. The apprehension you have caused to thousands of women in the community will be felt for a long time. You are the fear that quickens their step as they walk home, or causes a parent to look anxiously at a clock when a child is late. And with those words, Paul was sent away never to walk the streets again, or at least... Everyone hoped. The following year, an appeals court made a different decision. They found that due to a technicality, the original judge had actually been required to set a minimum non-parole period. And so the appeals court finally resentenced Paul to a term of life imprisonment with a minimum non-parole period of 30 years. This now meant Paul would be eligible for parole, after serving 30 years, and as of right now, it's been 29. That means that in less than a year, Paul will be up for parole at the age of 51. Families and friends of the murdered victims are now speaking out, expressing outrage at Paul's possible release. But in the end, it'll be up to Australia's independent adult parole board to make that decision. For nearly 30 years, criminologists, detectives, journalists, and authors have all been trying to understand what could have possibly motivated Paul's horrific killing spree. Where was the malfunction in his psyche or his environment or childhood? What exactly had made him snap? For a long time, Paul maintained that his violence and aggression could be attributed to having been sexually assaulted by one of his older brothers as a child. And for years, that was the narrative he used to explain his actions. In later years, it was revealed Paul's accusations about his brother had been completely false, with Paul even later writing an apology to his brother for lying. And now here's Dr. Shaham Das to dive further into the mind of Paul Denier and what may have been some contributing factors that led him to go on a murder spree. Hello, cruel world. My name is Dr. Shaham
0: Das. I'm a consultant forensic psychiatrist, and I act as an expert witness in criminal cases, and I'm also the host of a YouTube channel, A Site for Sore Minds. So let's look at the psychoanalysis of Paul Denya. I think there are simply no easy answers. During his trial, Paul was diagnosed with sadistic personality disorder. That's a disorder defined by the revised DSM3 as a person having a pervasive pattern of sadistic and cruel behavior. However, with the publishing of the DSM-IV, which only happened the following year, sadistic personality disorder was removed as a clinical diagnosis due to this fear of it being used as a legal excuse by dangerous criminals. However, if we look at the modern-day framework of diagnoses within forensic psychiatry, I would say that he would fit in very neatly with the diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder otherwise known as dissocial personality disorder. So this is when an individual is impulsive, they're aggressive, they lack empathy, so they don't care about the rights and wrongs of other people, they don't care about the law or social barriers or boundaries, and they tend not to learn from their mistakes. So people with antisocial personality disorder tend to be repeat career criminals. They tend to be like drug dealers or thugs, as opposed to others who might do one-off acts of violence in the heat of passion and who might regret it afterwards regardless of what the actual diagnosis was one thing that we can say about paul denier is that as far back as anyone can remember there was certainly a number of red flags as a child he began mutilating his sister's stuffed animals he would stab them he would cut them he would pull out the stuffing and even though he always denied it his mother and his siblings always knew it was him they just couldn't prove it so what do I think of this? I wonder if he developed some sort of perverse pleasure, just being able to get away with this sadistic behavior. I wonder if it gave him a sense of superiority and also a sense of purpose, because for once he is the one that is intelligent. He's the one that's fooling and even haunting all of those around him. And you know, he got away with it. He knew he did it, they knew he did it, but he managed to hide in plain sight. But then things take an even darker twist Around the time that he was 12, Paul found a stray kitten and cut its throat before hanging it from a tree in his family's backyard. Again, Paul denied doing it, but his brother found fur and blood on one of Paul's pocket knives. And as we all know, there's no smoke without fire. There's no cat murdering without blood. So moving on, the running joke in the family was that Paul had been dropped on his head as a baby, in which, in his case, actually happened. Throughout his childhood, when Paul did something inexplicable, his family would usually chalk it up to the fall, always believing the joke was all in good fun. Now actually, head injuries are a complicated beast. A very specific type of injury, so the frontal lobe, the front of our brains, if that very specific area is damaged, then that can have implications on people's aggression and on their behavior. They can become quite impulsive, they can have a low threshold for violence, they can lose their inhibitions, and also they no longer care about social norms and boundaries. And in extreme cases, this can actually lead to violence or aggression, which is uncharacteristic. So the person's personality actually changes. It's very rare and it's a remarkable thing to see. At school, Paul was an unremarkable loner. He had little interest, no friends, zero personality. In fact, a former teacher described him as being notable because he was so bland. His prominent character trait was his persistent indifference, which would come out when he described the details of his crime spree to detectives in the future. And I wonder if this had an effect on him. So because of his bland personality, because he just blended into the furniture, I wonder if that made him feel more isolated and more marginalized. You know, he's ignored by his peers. And could this have maybe not explained, but at least contributed to his obsession with violence? Maybe now finally he's got a sense of identity and purpose. What I'm saying is after all of those years of feeling like a nobody, now he was somebody. At age 14 is when Paul claimed he first began the urge to kill. Just a year later, he dropped out of school entirely and began working in a string of low paying jobs, but he never lasted for more than a few months. Paul began walking the streets at night stalking women. He later claimed he'd stalked heaps of them over the years also while watching them through their windows, which is something eerily reminiscent of serial killer Danny Rowling from episode 111, The Gainesville Murders. Go check it out right now if you've not heard that episode. And like other serial killers such as Dharma, Paul also experimented by kinning animals before moving on to humans. And I wonder why that was. Maybe he had this certain thrill in seeing these helpless animals suffer, but like most kind of carnal bloodlust urges, I wonder if over time he built a tolerance, so he needed like a bigger target. He needed more stimulation to chase that initial high and to get this this uh, bloody satisfaction. In early 1993, just months before the murders began, Paul slaughtered a pair of goats in a farmer's field, slicing and dismembering them in the middle of the night. Not long after that, Paul planned his first murder, a woman named Donna, who was one of his neighbors sisters. Donna was also a new mother, just like Debbie Freem had been. And one night, she left her home, taking her baby with her to spend some time with a friend. When she came home later that night, she discovered that her three house cats had been slaughtered in horrific fashion. What is it with this dude and cat? On her wall, written in cat's blood, was the message, Donna, you're dead. Paul later admitted to being the one who'd broken into her house that night. He also admitted that it wasn't the cats he'd been after. He'd broken in to murder Donna. So looking back at this dude, the character's traits that really stand out in Paul to me are him being impulsive, aggressive, this huge lack of empathy and remorse, and also a distinct pleasure in intentionally choosing vulnerable victims, whether they be animals or humans. So as I said before, this fits almost perfectly. It's almost a textbook example of antisocial personality disorder. So that would be my distant spot diagnosis.
1: In 1993, 30 years may have seemed like a long way away, an unspecified date in the distant future. But now, all of a sudden, 30 years is right around the corner. And for the residents of Frankston, anyone who was around back then still remembers the manhunt for a serial killer. They remember the families of Elizabeth Stevens, Debbie Frame, and Natalie Russell, And the three young women whose lives were viciously stolen from them. But in 1994, Debbie Frame's cousin Sarah predicted that while the community might remember all the other details, there's one thing she's afraid might be forgotten. The sheer terror Paul inflicted on an entire community. I'd like to thank Dr. Shaham Das for providing his insight on this episode. If you want to hear more from him, check out his YouTube channel, A Psych for Sore Minds. I also want to thank again all of our listeners and online community that have reached out to us with such kind messages of support in light of our recent nightmare. And finally, I want to thank Phil from Classic Edge Shaving. His site is one of my favorite places to order male grooming supplies. And I made an order with him last week and called to follow up on the order. And when he found out that I lost almost everything in the flood, he put a care package together for me to see me through until we get the house back together. So even though I'm living out of a suitcase for the next few months, I don't look at it or feel it. So check out his website, the ship worldwide, classicedge.ca. And now I'd like to introduce the podcast, The Golden Age of Murder. From the late nineteen
0: sixties to the early nineteen nineties, the United States saw an unprecedented surge in serial killer. We had not just in dynamic changes of the post-war period, but in the development of the human psyche going back many millennia to our ancient past. Wonder why serial killers exist, why they emerged, and why they exploded in the post-war United States? Check out The Golden Age of Murder, a panoramic look at serial killing focusing on the United States in the post-war period, a podcast that goes beyond serial killer profiles to dig into why serial killings exist and to find out why the 1960s to 1990s is the apogee of serial murder.
1: This is The Golden Age of Serial Murder with your hosts, Toby and Simeon. <laughs> Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. If you'd like to support this show and get some extra perks, like early release and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. Our website can be found at mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle... At Madness Pod. To listen to the Minds of Madness and other Wondery shows at free, start your free trial of Wondery Plus at WonderyPlus.com slash madness.